Welcome to the Knowing Jesus Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bach, a licensed professional counselor. On the show, we explore who the real Jesus is with his love, with his power, and with his endless pursuit of humanity, with the hope of changing our lives. Good morning. Today, we'll be reading John chapter 13, verses 31 through John chapter 4, verses 5. When he was gone, referring to Judas, when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Right off the bat, a number of things stand out to me as I read this. First is the last one. You know the way to the place I am going. So that's one of our points for today. Another point is, do not let your hearts be troubled. Uh, that's a challenging one. Another one is, love one another as I have loved you. And that's how my disciples will be known. And we'll talk about glory. All right, so first, like I said, the last one, let's just go backwards just for fun today. Um, you know the way to the place where I am going. Uh, I've never noticed that before. Uh, it's interesting that his disciples clearly don't know, one, where he's going, or uh, they're not aware that they know how to get there. I believe Jesus has made this already clear, or he will soon. The idea, yeah, that he is uh, the way, the truth, and the light, um, and that anyone who comes to the Father has to go through him. He is the, the gate by which the sheep have to enter. He is the true shepherd. Very known metaphors and understandable uses of language for back then. For us, as as most my listeners probably <laughs> are not shepherds, if you are, that is awesome. Way to go, keeping the trade alive. Um, so yeah, for us, it's like, what does that mean? Doesn't make any sense. He talks about being the true shepherd and the good shepherd and how a good shepherd will lay his life down for his sheep. We're getting closer to seeing what that meant because at the time they're like, what are you talking about? And 
as they will, as Scripture is going to point out to us later in the story, once Jesus is crucified, and more specifically, once he raises from the dead, they get it. That obviously they can't go where he is going, this side of heaven. They have to die, just like Jesus does. But they also have to raise, like Jesus does. Um, So that's even further removed for them in this point where they haven't seen Jesus rise from the dead. They have seen Jesus rise others from the dead. Uh, So that is, uh, again, didn't know that he's like, you know how to get to where I'm going. It's amazing how kind and believing he is in his disciples. He gives them on some levels more credit, right? He's like, you you already know how to get there. Uh, And other times we see that he challenges them, you know, you have little faith. Um, Shout out again to the chosen that shows the life of Jesus and his disciples Granted, yes, they use a lot of creative liberty, but everything I've seen uh, is done in a way that really uplifts scripture and amplifies the story and just gives reasonable explanations for what could have happened in these people's lives. It's okay to use creative liberty. They're not saying, hey, this is in place of scripture. So it's so great. And this is an example, right, where we see this, this Jesus does both. Jesus, on one end, is saying, Y'all don't have much faith. And you notice how I'm saying that he's not, the, the way I, my intention is with my voice tone is it's of kindness and compassion and almost endearment as opposed to shame and snubbing his nose and being just just disgusted with them, right? So Jesus is on one sense being very real. You guys don't have enough faith. And yet right here is an example of saying, guys, you even, you have more faith than you realize. You already know how to get where I'm going, which seems like a mystery. On to the next point. Actually, I kind of cheated here. Uh, There's a point I forgot to mention, this idea that Jesus calls out to Peter saying, you're going to deny me uh, three times before the rooster crows. How how can you make this promise that you're not going to disown me? Again, the amazing mystery that Jesus picks Flawed human beings, and when I'm saying that, that doesn't mean, oh, he could have found the good humans. (laughs) He could have found the perfect humans. What's so awesome is that unlike other religions that that may at times try to to make a human being look perfect, you know, have the, the, the followers be perfect examples in Christianity, you know, God, he's he's human, but he's also God, so he kind of gets a pass there. But with his disciples, They are accurate representations of human beings. They suck. Peter, a man who I often relate to, makes this passionate appeal, saying, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to abandon you. I, I have, like, perfect faith. I'm not going anywhere. And Jesus tells him that, actually, you're going to deny me. And if we know the whole story, one, isn't it cool that Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him the day he asked Peter to join him at the very beginning of ministry, before he even chose Peter, while Peter was walking along with him this whole time, and Peter exclaims, or sorry, Jesus exclaims how much faith Peter has, and Jesus doesn't disown Peter when Peter disowns Jesus. So that was your your bonus point for the day. How awesome that God uses human beings we can relate to. But counseling plug here, if we don't know our story, if we can't go to these places where shame might try to hijack the story, 
we won't be able to identify with these disciples. And if we can't identify with their humanity and brokenness, then we're not going to be able to identify with the goodness and holiness that Jesus offers them. Friends, I've been a Christian, gosh, since I was 21, I'm 34, like 13 years. Um, And although I know God has worked on my heart and on some level I've become a better person because of what he's done, I actually see more and more where I miss the mark and fail. And just recently, about a year ago, of which I'm writing a book about, this idea that the more we accept and understand our brokenness, the more we become raw and vulnerable and, and authentic about our stories and experience, the more we're actually going to experience God's love for us. If I have to lie and cover up my brokenness, well, guess what? I'm not going to experience the love of Jesus the same way that the desperate, broken beggar is going to experience him. I think the Bible invites us to be hungry, broken beggars because the poor in faith, the spiritually bankrupt, those who see that they have nothing, God has all kinds of blessings and positive adjectives to to ascribe to these people. Again, countercultural. Now we see, to another point, Jesus gives them this new command, love one another as I have loved you. So maybe I'm reading into this, but even if you look in the Old Testament, if you really you know, read between the lines, a lot of what God is commanding his people is to do love. So yeah, does he use the language of love? Maybe he does and I missed it. I don't know. But the concept of love is throughout the Old Testament. So even though he says it's a new commandment, I think he's being a little like sarcastic or ironic here because if we think about the Jews were commanded to be set apart and different, that is one of the definitions of what holy means. Other, set apart, different. So the Jewish people were supposed to be a light on a hill. They were supposed to be a nation that operated differently than the other nations because they followed Yahweh, another name for God or his actual like more personal name. What do I mean by all this? Let's take classic examples where God gives commands to the Israelites and says, you are not to turn away the foreigner or the refugee. Why would he say that? Because God understands that if you are displaced and you are vulnerable and you don't know anybody and maybe you don't speak the language, you are one, more prone to be taken advantage of, and two, it's scary and you need more support and love. Now, isn't that fascinating? That's an incredibly progressive concept back like 6,000 years ago. Hopefully I'm doing the math right. Hashtag baby brain on like all my facts. Sorry, you're probably gonna have to extra double check me. But they were told to do that. They were told to take care of people that were different than them. And that was like insane. Like talk about tribalism. Like literally most of like if not all of human history at that point was tribalism. Like, if you aren't us, if you don't look like us, if you're not part of our clan, screw you, you're an enemy, get out of our way. And God is saying, actually, if for some reason somebody who's not the Jewish people comes into your land, take care of them. That's loving. He says the same thing about orphans and widows. Again, theme here, those who are 
more at risk of either being neglected, taken advantage of, not being provided for. Maybe we'll go into it specifically. So it's a patriarch society. Does God say specifically man is supposed to rule everything and man only should have property? I don't see that in the text, but God does at least speak to, even if y'all are going to screw this up, you have to at least take care of the widow and the orphan. No one should be just screwed. So he shows a pattern. Those are just two examples. Widow, well, three, I guess, technically. Widow, orphan, foreigner, refugee, maybe four. Those are examples of loving. I might be mixing up timetables here again, but there's a point where we probably will see in John, if not, it will be in another gospel, where a Pharisee is trying to self-justify himself and be self-righteous in Jesus' eyes and claims he's doing the law. And some conversation happens about where he might be tithing his spices. Okay, great. I tithe to 10% of my mint and my uh, my thyme and my oregano, whatever. But then the same person that's quote-unquote like doing amazing is literally ignoring his own family who needs help. He's like not taking care of his parents. I forget the exact example, but very common for a Jewish person. Hey, my family's old. They're decrepit. I need to take care of them. It's my responsibility to take care of them. And he is over here tithing his spices, but that's saying, hey, dad, I don't care that you're lame or have dementia or whatever. Just deal with your own life. And that is what Jesus challenges that guy for. He was the, the Pharisee was using the law to justify himself. Hey, I'm, I'm going above and beyond. I don't just tithe my sheep and my money. I tithe my spices. And Jesus is like, wow, good for you, man. What do you want? Like a plaque? Because you missed the point. It doesn't matter if you're tithing if you're not loving people. So that's a long-winded way of saying that all along, God's law is about human flourishing and caring for people and loving them. So even though he's saying a new commandment, again, I'm reading to this, I think it's sarcastic because if someone knew the law in their heart, not just their mind, right? I mean, think of how many laws uh, today uh, you could go with, okay, technically I'm following the law, but the law might even hurt somebody uh, if I follow the law. Uh, and so like, you're like, well, what would I do? And so Jesus emphasizes and makes it even clearer, the law, my law, this new commandment is you must love one another. And this is a fascinating and often overlooked sentence. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. I don't know why. Maybe I've mentioned this before, so sorry if I'm repeating myself. I need to read more so I can have better examples. Um, so apologies if I'm obscuring my facts. Two ideas come to mind. One, I have no idea when this was aired. If someone does, let me know. I can add it in the notes so people know I'm not pulling things out of the air. There was some uh, episode on Oprah a long time ago, or maybe an Oprah-like show, where basically someone had done wrong to the guest, and the guest chose to forgive. And that kind of love and forgiveness was so contrary to culture, and I think this is like 10, 20 years ago, maybe, that the audience booed them. Like, no, don't, no. Like, mob mentality. Like, no, screw them. Let's just witch hunt. Another example, there was the some horrible hate crime done at a black church, and someone had killed people, and the families 
of the victims confronted the killer and openly like forgave him. And I forget if they were like praying for him, but they didn't wish him. I mean, understandably and rightfully so. You still need to go to jail. You did wrong things. That does, you know, just <laughs> forgiveness and mercy doesn't mean you don't have consequences ever. But they didn't like hate him and they were willing to forgive. I can't even comprehend. Like that is faith. Like on one end, I don't even want to pray for that because I don't know what horrible thing would happen to me that then I, that, that's the kind of thing that happens that that faith is like proven to, sh- to be seen. That is that deep. But those people, oh my gosh, like those heroes have a better understanding of Christianity than I probably ever will. And that's amazing. And that's part of what Jesus is talking about. The irony is that his love can be so offensive that some people are going to be turned off by it, right? I've been turned off by that before. Uh, Many times in my life before I was a Christian, probably even while I was a Christian, like, no, don't give people that kind of kindness. Don't give people that kind of love or forget. They don't deserve it. And I'm over here in the the justice camp just like, no, don't, like, don't do that. And I believe that like part of why Jesus, one, is God's love. And he, he loves in a way, like, I'm just starting to grasp this a little bit more. Like sometimes I do this thing where like, instead of like on a scale of like a hundred percent, I try to go up to like a billion percent. Like uh, maybe if like last year before I had a son, I had like a 50 point understanding out of a billion of God's love. Now having a son, I've gone to like 300 points, right? So on on one level, that's six, six times as much. It's incredible, (laughs) which is, yeah, great. Out of a billion. Okay. Long way to go. God is love. And on some level, I think there's parts of it that we may never fully, and I don't say may, we, we won't fully understand this side of heaven, but he gives us glimpses. He gives us glimpses by saying, you should love in a way that people know that you're different. And I hate to say this, this is probably where I might start to get canceled or piss people off. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to, the current agenda to say that um, I'm going to hate you because you're hateful, whether that's actually hateful or just perceived as hate or labeled as hate, accurately or inaccurately, Christians should never be like that. Christians should never be part of a witch hunt. I know that's part of American history. Christians did do witch hunts. It's evil. It's wrong. Shouldn't have done that. Love means I love my neighbor, I love my friend, I love my family, and I love my enemy. Now let's talk about that. It's offensive. It sucks. I don't like it. But it doesn't mean I get to change it. And I'll just say it. If you hate Biden, that means loving Biden. If you hate Trump, that means loving Trump. If you know someone who actually truly is a neo-Nazi, it means you love that person. And I don't like that, but that's the honest truth. If you know someone who calls themselves a social justice activist or a trans activist and they are hateful, because there's a lot of them out there that are hateful. There's a lot of people on the other side that are hateful. There's hateful people everywhere. It means to love them. If someone hates you, it means love them. It doesn't matter which side you're on. There is no holier-than-thou ground. It doesn't exist. If someone claims to have all the answers and says they've got it figured out and they're right, and so they get to decide who it's okay to love and who it's okay to hate, news for you, false. False teacher, false prophet, not holy, not good. That is if you are a disciple of Jesus. I'm not condemning people in this world that aren't followers of Christ. I get it. It doesn't make any sense. Heck, I'm a Christian, and it doesn't make sense. It's hard. 
But that's why Jesus says, they, the world, and other Christians, will know you are mine because of your love. Love doesn't mean affirmations. It doesn't mean throwing parties. It doesn't mean I agree with everything you say. Love is kindness. Love is charity. Love is respect. Love is how I talk to you in front of your face, behind your back, on social media. Love is unconditional. Again, that's my favorite phrase right now. The world loves equity. Some of the world loves equity right now. (laughs) The Christian faith is the most equitable ideology ever. And I hate using the word ideology because to me it's a heck of a lot more than an ideology. But if you're non Christian, it's the most equitable ideology, philosophy, and religion on the face of the earth because no one gets to say that they're better than anybody. No one. No one gets a free pass. No one gets special treatment. No one gets an out of jail free card. No one gets to lobby in their favor. No one gets to use corruption and bribe God. Nah. He's like, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, I know that doesn't mean anything in our day and age, but it's his way of saying, I own every diamond, every gold particle. I own the galaxy. You can't give me anything to sway me, to change who he is. And yet, side point, he does invite us to ask for things in his name by prayer. That's a whole other topic. If you've made it this far and haven't cussed me out, (laughs) maybe you have and you're still listening, that's even more amazing and I applaud that and I I commend your openness and curiosity. Um, If you're struggling, that's okay. I'm struggling too. Let's struggle together. The world needs a lot more gray and a lot more middle ground and a lot more people who are just like, okay, let's all just be on the struggle bus together uh, instead of creating camps of division and hatred. Okay, and... The last point, maybe I skipped one because I got all excited. Um, The last point for today is glory. I'm probably going to have a subpar answer for both Christians and non-Christians. But the first thing that comes to mind is an Old Testament passage. Moses, you know, again, classic human, classic underdog meets person that God recognizes as being very faithful give a short synopsis of his life for those who don't know. Born. uh, (laughs) Awesome. Great way to, yeah, as if he wasn't born. Sorry. Um, So he's born to a Hebrew woman in a time where the Egyptians had enslaved the Hebrews. Uh, It was illegal to let yourself have either a certain number of children, I think also specifically male children. Uh, So his his mother hides him away. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter picks him up, raises Uh, Moses as her own. So Moses, unique dynamic here, raised in some sense both as a Hebrew because his mother then was hired as a nurse, super cool, but then also raised in Pharaoh's household. This man has an incredible position. He is, well, difficult one, but incredible. He is uh, a foot in two opposing camps. He's got one foot as an Egyptian, raised as an Egyptian, Egyptian schooling, another foot in the hand of the Hebrews by his own mother. Okay. So that's his his upbringing, his context. He rises up as a young man. And again, as I'm saying, he's torn. That's why I'm bringing his context into this. He sees an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew. Uh, His Hebrew side gets enraged, kills the Egyptian. Murder, never okay. Not good, bad. Kills the Egyptian, covers it up, I think, unless I'm (laughs) stealing lines from, um, what was that Disney movie? The 
the the one where they whatever. Sorry. Um, anyways, maybe covers it up. Maybe don't. Please read the the text. Then Moses comes to his people and is like, look, guys, I protected you. I killed the oppressor. And his people are like, no, we don't trust you. You're terrible. You're one of them. Wow, does any of this sound like culturally relevant to this day? Uh, so Moses then realizing, crap, my people aren't for me. I just pissed off the Egyptians. They want to hurt me. Moses becomes a refugee himself. Get where he hides, but he hides somewhere, gets married, does his life for a while. God calls him through a burning bush. Don't worry, this story's going somewhere. I didn't just get lost uh, in baby, baby brain land. Burning bush, God calls him, God gets his attention, and then God says, okay, you're going back to Egypt, and we're going to do some things differently. You're not going to kill people. You're not using violence. You're going to use signs and wonders to show my people, the Hebrews, and the Egyptians, who is Lord of all. That's important context, okay? Moses, broken person, called by God, shaped by God, discipled by God, and then has to do a difficult task. Fast forwarding to the glory part, Moses now has lived more of a faithful life at this point. He's been leading his people. He hasn't broken the rock yet in a a disobedience. We'll get to that someday, very long from now. But Moses still following God really, really well. And he says, Lord, I want to see your face. That's where we're getting the glory part. God, paraphrasing, God is like, if you saw my face, it would destroy you. (laughs) It's like, whoa, okay, what does that mean? Right, so we could go the fear route and say that God is threatening Moses. He's not. This is back to where the ways of God can seem confusing at first, but the Lord's heart is preservation. Moses, I like you. And I know this doesn't make sense to the people of this age in Hebrew antiquity, and it doesn't make sense to the people of Brian's age, 2023, but the laws of physics and principles obey Yahweh, and if he showed his face right now without covering it, it would obliterate you. So Moses says, show me your face. And God says, that is impossible. It would destroy you. I don't want to kill you, Moses. I like you. (laughs) So then they go back and forth. And God, or they negotiate down to, okay, God, or Moses, I'll show you my back. I'm going to veil my glory, and you're going to see my back. And if you know what happens in the text, from from that day forward, I know this is weird. It sounds like fantasy world. Again, all of Christian faith is based on miracles. So what's what's another one? From that day forward, Moses is, (laughs) wow, this is hitting me. Moses' face shone. Like it was, it was bright. His face was so bright. It scared the people and he had to wear a veil over his face from that day forward. Why does that mean anything? So God identifies with himself with a couple principles. He says, you know, Jesus, I am, I'm light. I am not, I'm the opposite of darkness. I am light. I am love. We think the sun is bright. You stare at the sun for what? 10, 20, 30 seconds, maybe a minute. I don't know what it is. Don't stare at the sun. You will go blind. God made the sun. The sun isn't bright to God. We might stare at the sun and go blind, but if I stare at the sun and go outside, it's not going to obliterate me. God turns his back to Moses to give him a taste of his glory, his out-of-this-worldness, his other-dimensionness, his sci-fi awesomeness, and it changes Moses forever. Moses is... Uh, Uh, DNA, metaphorically, is changed. His particles respond to interacting 
with the glory of God and that now he becomes a reflection of light. I'm going out on a limb here, but I think this is foreshadowing to the concept of when you become a Christian, you are changed. If you are a Christian, if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you're different. And again, as I said it before, uh, Christian right here talking to you, I'm still a mess. I'm still broken. But the main difference in me is that I have an identity built outside of myself. So when I screw up, I can say, friend, I'm sorry. I hurt you. It was wrong. Maybe evil. It was terrible. I don't have to defend myself. I can't defend myself. And that kind of love, a humble openness to how I affect other people, taking ownership, taking personal responsibility, is like Moses, my DNA being changed by the one who lives inside of me spiritually. So glory, back to that concept. Glory is, I'll say the phrases again, out of this worldness, other dimensionalness, I know these are words, brightness, something that leaves you shocked and in awe. I can draw on my personal experience as a father here, both when my son was born and various times since he's been born. <laughs> I just like look at him and my brain melts a little bit. I'm like, ah, uh, okay, scientifically, you're like half me, half my wife. How did that happen? You started off as just two cells. You, you on one end are like just this bundle of nerves because you don't have any like social skills yet. And yet now you're starting to smile randomly. Like you make eye contact. Like it's, it's, it's incredible. That's glory. It leaves me stunned. And so I use an example that we can understand something tangible, baby, fatherhood, beauty, sunset, glory, to something intangible, you know, mostly this side of heaven. God, Yahweh, Jesus, Holy Spirit. I would venture to say, as long as you understand, as I'm saying, glory is tied to the nature of God and who he is and his, his, his relationship, glory, God's glory, is what's missing and what every human being is hungering for. I know this is going to sound cheesy and I don't really care because I'm tired and, and this is, is, is affecting me at least. Glory is the sunset that never stops. It's that holding of the hand that never gets old, that makes you feel loved. It's the never feeling alone. It's the everything is well in this moment, but that moment never ends. Glory is God's kingdom established where there's never, ever another hateful anything. No harm, no brokenness, no ill will, no disparity. Glory, God's glory, is heaven coming to earth and all things being made well, and the story having a happy ending, and being united with our creator, and living out the fullest potential that we were meant to live, and we get glimpses of it here, but as many authors and writers have alluded to, this is the preface, the preface, I don't know, the intro. This is the beginning of the chapters that, ah, you kind of read them, and maybe it whets your appetite, but it's, it's all right. We haven't even begun the good chapters of this story. And again, I'm saying that as a father filled with the light of my son, I don't mean that in any negative way of him, but that's how big God is. He breaks our brains for what we can imagine, what we can expect. And he is the filling of the hunger in our souls. As we wrap up today, going to do something a little different would love feedback. I was just very much spitballing it here, rough drafting, 
not preparing at all. I know you with ADD probably love it and are like, oh man, this is great. <laughs> like, I am not distracted because this guy's brain is all over the place. If that is difficult for, for many of you or some of you, send me a note. I want to find this mixture of where I am just raw and as unproduced as possible. But I don't want to confuse the heck out of people either. I'm trying to be um, meaningful, helpful, productive too. So I'll try to find the, uh, the Venn diagram where those overlap the best. With that said, I uh, hate to be selfishly plugging here, but so excited that more and more people are listening to the Knowing Jesus podcast. So if you could, um, I'm going to try to post on Facebook. Find me, Brian Bachman. Find Knowing Jesus podcast on Facebook, on Twitter, um, on Podbean, uh, wherever you can like, comment, and share on posts that I make and just sending people links to this podcast. I, I leave like 10 links below, so you can find it in every format, Google, Pandora, Spotify, Apple, all the fun people out there, right? I encourage you to share. I'm incredibly humbled by feedback I've gotten just about bringing some middle ground to, to some of these intense conversations that we have in this day and age to be presenting things in love and, and yet honoring both sides. I've yet to hear someone be like, you're just a terrible person. I'm sure that's going to come someday. But uh, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of myself. I'm What I love this, and I would love to do this more full time, and you can make that possible. But I also just feel so compelled to be an instrument, a vessel of God's love in a day and age where we need it. So, and I need you because I'm not going to lie. I, I like business, but I suck at social media. I suck at being <laughs> social in general. <laughs> so if you were to take that upon yourself to share for me, uh, this could happen. If it's all on me, it ain't going to happen unless God just, just does it. But I know he can work through me. He can work through you and we can do this together. So I thank you all to who have already shared, who've talked about this. So cool. One last shout out, not about me. Again, mother-in-law. Thank you so much for your continued help and support with our child. You have given us sanity and peace. Um, I'm back to podcasting again a little bit because you've, you've helped us not be in a deficit and walked alongside of us in, in the middle of the night. I mean, beautiful human. Thank you so much. My parents have helped, but it doesn't just end there. Ashley Bachman, wife of Brian Bachman. You get a shout out too. You are watching our kiddo literally right now. You're an amazing wife and mother. I have been so touched by the way you interact with our son, the loving voice tone you have, the playfulness you have with him. I've gotten to know you more because of this kiddo. And that is beautiful. I didn't expect that. I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect that. So it's very cool. I know you will probably take a number of weeks before you hear this. So surprise, happy late Valentine's Day extra present. Oh, oh my gosh. There's so many people that have sent us DoorDash and the other thing, but people have given us gift cards for food. Thank you all. I'm not going to ask 100 people if I can say your name publicly. So just general thank you for everyone who has given us money, who's made us food. My goodness, we've seen the love of the Christian family in a desperate time as our little kiddo has often not slept up until the last like week-ish, started to sleep um, and not cry for two and three hours at a time. So praise Jesus, uh, little Caden's doing well. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, thanks again, and I can't wait to, to talk to you again soon.